begins to disappear in our home. And uh, so it's fun when we can get it. So thank you. Well, I want to start this morning by stating uh, something that is absolutely obvious to each and every one of us. And, uh, and then we want to unpack that uh, this morning with, uh, uh, with God bringing light to help us understand that. Here's what's obvious. Life is a great mixture of joys and sorrows. It can be filled with the greatest and most fulfilling connections with another person or group of people in one moment and a few hours later uh, feeling such loneliness. It can be of experiencing an amazingly beautiful sunset and then the same night a rainstorm coming and washing an entire house with family in it to their death. It can be experiencing the great joys of having a healthy baby born and two months later they're called into heaven. Or to experiencing 60 years of marriage and then having to stand at the gravesite, having lost your best friend your soulmate and your bedmate. Uh, it's just such a mixture, isn't it? We all know that, don't we? And uh, my guess is that most of us are in both of those arenas most of our life. Uh, certainly the longer we live, we end up being in both of those. Uh, this is well understood by people uh, and has been through history and and so consequently you see it captured in the yin and the yang. You see it captured in, uh, uh, you know, the good guys in the white and the black guys in the black, whether it was the cowboys or whether it's Star Wars. Uh, and so it's just something that is, is so clearly seen and captured every place. What's interesting are the different ways uh, to understand and even move beyond of how do you deal with this? How do you make sense out of this? And, uh, and there's a lot of different ways that historically people have done that. One, uh, one way is, is to just say all passions are bad. The way to navigate this world, that being true, is to not let the good things excite you and the bad things discourage and depress you. And so just numb yourself to any feelings whatsoever. And if you can get yourself to a place where you have no sense of feeling and response, man, that is the healthy place to be. There's another group of people that say, be passionate about something. Um, just go for something with all of your heart. And, and there's different religious belief systems that capture this one as well. Uh, work. To, to earn favor with a God or particular deities that you have. Uh, whether it's uh, loving and being kind to people or people who don't want to agree with you, you put them to death. And then, of course, there's the philosophy of life. Eat, drink, you finish it. Be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's what Solomon mentioned in Ecclesiastes, and it's a very prevalent way of thinking, especially in an affluent culture like ours, where we can afford lots of eats and lots of drinks. And, uh, and so those are the different, uh, some of the different ways that we try to deal with this. 
Uh, thankfully, we don't have to settle for any of those ways because all of them ring with some incompleteness, something that doesn't fully satisfy nor answer the longings of our hearts. And even more thankfully, God has revealed to us why we experience this mixture in this life and what he has done to bring a remedy to it, a remedy to it. And so this morning, I want us to look at a few verses together. Uh, You know, the great challenge of Easter morning is you could go to a thousand different places in in the Bible, but we're going to go over to Romans chapter 5 this morning, and I'm actually going to put the verses up here, but if you want to open them up and look at them, that's always a good thing to do. And then what I want to do is is, uh, these verses use some descriptive terms of people and what God has done and, and his saving work that I want to bring some context to by looking at human history as told to us by the scriptures from the beginning all the way to the end. And so Romans chapter 5, and uh, I'm going to put it up here and we'll read it together. How about that this morning? So here we go. You ready? For a while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, Let me pray for us. Father, uh, we pray that by your Spirit you would uh, help us to see ourselves in these verses. And uh, I'm just grateful for the way that you can burst through and uh, bring light. And uh, we trust you to do that today. And we're grateful that that's your heart's desire. So we wait upon you to that end. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. So look at these verses uh, for a few moments, and then we'll put them in some historical context of, uh, because there's some terms that are in here that if, uh, if you're not, if you haven't read these before, and uh, especially if you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, you're gonna wonder what these terms mean, and you're even gonna wonder, who are these people? Uh, who are these people that are helpless? That, that cannot do anything to help the situation that they're in. In fact, what is the situation that they are in? Who are these ungodly that Christ died for? Uh, who might those be? Um, and then this amazing declaration that, uh, you know, for a really good person, someone might even dare to lay down their life, but who would lay down their life for a scoundrel? 
And, and we do have examples of people laying down their lives for good people, don't we? Had one a couple weeks ago in France when that policeman took the place of a hostage. And it cost him his life. Um, so there are examples of people laying down their life for, you know, good people. But who in the world is going to lay down their life for someone who's ungodly, who's a scoundrel? And yet God has demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. So who are these sinners that Christ died for? What's this whole deal about being saved from the wrath of God? Why would God be wrathful towards me? Why would God want to bring wrath upon people? What in the world is that all about? Who are these enemies of God that can be reconciled to him through the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Who are these people who, having been reconciled, are in fact saved by the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? And so it's important that we understand who these people are that we might understand what God has done for us uh, and, and who, what he has done for these people. So what I want to do is I want to see if I can capture, based upon the scripture, uh, some of hum- human history uh, from beginning to end. And so we read in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God, you finish it for me, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we have that he created the heavens, he created the earth. And a couple things that we know about this creation. One is that it was 100% life. There was no death, there was no disease, there was no broken relationships. There was nothing that would fall under this category of death and separation and hurt, and anxiety, and loneliness, and and addictions, and all of that kind of stuff. And in fact, Adam and Eve only knew what was good. In fact, at the end of that uh, sixth day, God says, this is very good. And so there was this initial creation where there's 100% life and knowing good. Now, interestingly enough, uh, for reasons that God alone uh, had in mind, he put within the garden there uh, a, a test in the form of a tree that represented a way of life. And so in Genesis 2.9 it says, out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, a couple of verses later, he goes on and he gives a command concerning these trees. He says, the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And so we see here that God has put this test And he has given a command to Adam that Adam is to pass on to Eve and in theory is to be passed on through the generations 
because God wants them to experience 100% life and he wants them to only know what good is. And yet there is this test within the garden there that is before them. Well, we know that somewhere in this time frame, either before this or during this creation, that there was a rebellion in heaven. There was a rebellion amongst some of the angels that God had created. And some of those led by an archangel, a chief angel called Lucifer, who wanted to make himself to be God. He says, I will be God. I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. Things that only God was allowed to do, capable of doing. And because of that, um, God judged Satan and those other angels who were following him so that Satan, be, uh, Lucifer became known as the devil and those other followers as demons. Now Jesus, when he was alive, described a place that he had prepared for these angels who had rebelled against him, and that place was hell. Now he's also saying here in Matthew 25 that there were some other people that were going to join him there, but we get ahead of ourselves if we go there now. And so he creates a place of hell where there is no life, zero life. It is only 100% death. Now, we would like to think of death as cessation, but that is not true. There is no cessation, and there's an ongoing experience of only knowing evil. And so God judged Satan and his followers, and this was the place that they were eventually headed to. But he did not yet send them there. In fact, he does another very interesting thing, and that is that he gives access to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and they now further test Adam and Eve on whether they will believe God and continue to experience 100% life and knowing God, or they will choose to believe that God isn't really good and that he isn't really for them. And so we read in Genesis chapter 3, let me read the first few verses of that, relative to this command that God had given to Adam. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Now what's the simple, straightforward answer to that? No, you can eat from all the other trees you want to eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for there are grave consequences to that. And so the devil comes in the form of a servant, of a serpent. And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
And so Satan takes a little bit of truth here and wraps it in a lie. He questions what God said. He questions the goodness of God. He basically says God is holding out on you. Was God holding out on them? Yeah. He didn't want them to experience evil. He knew what evil was. Satan had rebelled. He was withholding from them what was hurtful, what was damaging, what was detrimental. He was withholding that from them. Well, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, we describe this, the church has described this for years, as the fall. This wasn't a stumble. This wasn't a trip. This was a very, very horribly significant fall. And now all of a sudden, Adam and Eve's experience is changed from, only not, from knowing only good to now, in fact, knowing good and evil. And in fact, there's a huge measure of death that they now enter into. There's a death in their relationship with God, where they used to enjoy his fellowship, where they used to enjoy living out his commands. Now they are hiding from God. And in fact, they're trying to cover up their own sin, which is expressed in their sense of nakedness. And they do that by getting their own ways and trying to cover that up. Do they go looking for God? Do they seek God? No, because there's a death now. There's a separation that has come into that. And so there's this death with God. There's a death that takes place in their own hearts to where now they experience shame where now all of a sudden they're going to blame God for the predicament that they're in. And, and all kinds of other things start here. There's a death that takes place in their relationship. Adam and Eve, who only knew good and 100% life in their marriage relationship, all of a sudden start blaming each other for what has taken place. And so there's a separation that comes into their marriage relationship. There's a separation that comes in. There's a death that takes place between them and the created world. All of a sudden, now there's weeds. All of a sudden, now you have to work and you get exhausted in the work, but you have to work. If you don't work, you don't get to eat. There's also a death that takes place within their physical bodies. The woman will now experience pain in childbirth. Disease now becomes a part of the human experience. And at the end of Genesis 3, God says, and because you came out of dust, to dust you will return. And so there was a huge level of death that took place here in the separation from God. And part of the consequence of this was that everyone now deserves the same judgment that Satan got. They deserve hell. 
that is the rightful sentence passed upon every single one who's ever born of Adam and Eve, and that includes who? Each one of us. Now, God does something absolutely extraordinarily surprising in this context. Not only does he say, okay, now you're going to know good and evil, but even here you see implied you'll continue to know some good. He doesn't immediately send them to hell. He doesn't immediately strike them dead. In fact, we see that God is not just a loving God in a proactive way by creating such an environment for them, but he is a God who comes to people who are separated from him. He comes to people who have rebelled against him, who have done all manner of things against him. And so he comes and he pursues Adam and Eve. And he makes a way for them to move back into a relationship with him, most vividly pictured by him killing an innocent animal and taking the skins of that animal to clothe them. And this is a theme we see picked up throughout Scripture, that to have a relationship with God, since you can't ever do enough good to outweigh your bad, because you only need to have done one evil thing, and then God has to judge that, the principle throughout Scripture is an innocent one can die to pay for the sins of the guilty one, and the guilty one now can have a relationship with God. And so this then becomes the norm of life on earth where there is an experiencing of both good and evil and there is an experiencing of life and death. God does not immediately strike them dead. And so this is the world that we live in, is it not? This is the world. What are some just really exciting Glorious things that you and I get to experience. Let's just name some of them. Okay, birth of a grandchild. You got to speak loud. I don't hear all that great anymore. Okay, marriage. Great marriage. Family. Salvation. Creation. Pardon? I, I'm, okay. Food? Oh, food. None of us are looking forward to that today. <laughs> okay, so there's some amazingly good things. What are some things that we experience where you just say, you know, this just, this just isn't right. This hurts. Yeah, pain. Physical pain. Uh, a bad marriage. Uh, pardon? Sickness. Death of family. There, there's all kinds of stuff, isn't there? I mean, what? Uh, I think it was Thursday night I read down at Magnolia and PCH of the drunk driver who plowed into the back end of four high school students from here from Las Vegas, and three of them got burned to death. Why did that have to happen? Why did that particular person feel the need to numb themselves through alcohol? That's just all a part of this evil and this death 
and this, this desperate need to numb ourselves. And I, and I know that. I watched my dad go down this path. It's just, how do you cope with this? How do you deal with this? Last night, we went out with Zeke and Bethany and their girls and scattered the ashes of my grandson. And there's no fault in God with what happened there. But it just isn't right. It just doesn't fit. And it was never a part of that. It's a reality because of this. And thus we live in this muddled world of good and evil and trying to move our way down with life and death. And we see that there's a God who pursued. And as you read through the Old Testament, you just see that over and over. There's a God who says, I'll give you life. I will be good to you even though you don't deserve it. Now, as you go on down through the the Old Testament, uh, you begin to realize that while God has done and intervened so that people don't have to go to hell, he in fact begins to talk about a place that is the absolute opposite of hell since the original creation was so screwed up by sin, and he begins to talk about heaven. And that's a place where there's 100% life There is no death, and we will only know good. Uh, We see this very clearly in a lot of the Psalms. Uh, Probably most familiarly, what? Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't lack anything I need, even living in this kind of a world. And then you get to the last verse, and it says what? Surely I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's heaven. That's heaven. And so we see this going on and we begin to see that there's a place that God has planned for those who will put their faith and trust in him. And there's always this idea going through the Old Testament of the innocent paying the price for the guilty. The problem is that whether it was a sheep that was sacrificed or a goat that was sacrificed, or a bull that was sacrificed, it wasn't a one-for-one exchange. A sheep is not a person, contrary to what some people are beginning to believe in our world. (laughs) A sheep is not a person. A person is created in the image and likeness of God. And there is a radical difference. And so we began to see that God's plan was that all of those animals that were sacrificed, the innocent for the guilty, were merely a shadow of what he had planned for an innocent person to die for the sins of guilty people. And of course, there was no innocent person that had ever been born and had ever lived, so what did God do? God the Father sent his only son And the Lord Jesus comes, the Father prepares a body for him in that miraculous conception and birth that we celebrate at Christmas. And then Jesus lived a a perfect life for the next 30, 33 years, perfectly fulfilling all of the law, all of the Old Testament. 
and then he's betrayed and he's crucified on what we celebrate as Good Friday and he is resurrected from the grave. And so here we have the crucifixion and this is the way we've depicted the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's going on there? The innocent one died in the place of the guilty ones. The ones who would recognize that they're guilty and they would come to him. And so we see a couple things take place here. We recognize that what God is doing is he is in fact overcoming evil with good. He does an infinitely good act to overcome the evil of what happened back in the garden and what happens in each one of our individual lives as we sin against God and he in fact brings life. He brings life. And we see that throughout his life. Wherever Jesus goes and wherever people want him, wherever people will trust him, he brings life. He can touch somebody with a deadly contagious disease and who wins? He does because he brings life. He can speak to a dead body. And what happens? The dead person comes back to life. Why? Because he brings life. He can speak to a storm that is freaking out well-known and experienced fishermen. And what happens? It ceases because he brings life. He can see a bunch of people out there that are in desperate need of food. And he can take a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish and multiply it. Why? Because he brings life. He can have people come to him who are laden with sins. And he can say, I forgive you. Go in peace. Why? Because he brings life. And so... What is Good Friday all about? Why is the resurrection such a big deal? <laughs> it undoes that. It prevents the trajectory of every one of our lives from being from the fall to hell. And it gives us the opportunity to recognize what God has done and to be put on a path to heaven. Or to put it simply, what? Jesus saves. Jesus saves. That's the point of the resurrection. Jesus saves. What does he save us from? We'll go back to Romans 5 here in just a minute. He saves us from the penalty of our sin. He saves us from that penalty and he gifts us with that. That's a pretty good deal, what do you think? He saves us from this. Because hell is described as a place where the wrath of God is continually experienced by those who are there. And he gives us this, the place where the blessing of God is continually experienced. And so he takes us from being those who deserve the wrath of God and he makes us friends. He takes us from being enemies and makes us his own citizens of his own kingdom. 
So he saves us from the penalty of our sin, but he also saves us from the power of sin in our life. So that forever how long we live after we put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, until the day he calls us home into heaven, we don't have to give in to any addictive behaviors. We don't have to give in to despondency. We don't have to give in to hopelessness. We don't have to give in to any of those things. And he frees us and moves us out of those dark places, out of those places of death, out of those places of destruction, relationally and in our own soul, and moves us more and more into a place of life. He doesn't shield us from all the evil of the world, but whatever evil He allows into our hearts, He even uses that for our good and for His great glory. And so he frees us from the power of sin, and then heaven is simply the place where we're free from the presence of sin. There'll be no more sinful desires. There'll be no more sinful people around us. There'll be no more Satan. And what do you say to that? Amen. Amen, amen. 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 And so let's go back to Romans 5 now that we... Oh, it might help if I went forward, huh? Okay, so let's look at these, Romans 5. For a while we were still helpless. Helpless what? Who are these helpless people? Every single person. What does it mean, helpless? It means while we were still helpless to change our destination from hell. Why we are helpless to get beyond addictive behaviors destructive things in our life. We're helpless, ultimately. We all have our limits. And this whole idea that we can win over everything is a lie straight from the pit of hell. We all have our limits. I can remember when I went through uh, POW training in the military, one of the things they kept impressing upon us is everybody has their breaking point. Why did they say that? So that when you broke... You didn't think you were a weak one. Everybody is helpless. And yet at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who are the ungodly? Every single person is, comes into this world by birth because of the fall. Every single one of us. And the most amazing thing is Christ died for who? He died for the ungodly godly. You don't have to fix your life before you come to Christ. You can't. If you dug a real deep hole, come to Jesus. If you've been so filled with pride that you have blasted God for many years, you're not beyond hope. You're just ungodly. Christ died for you. You got your total life together and everybody thinks you're the greatest thing since sliced bread around you, but you're separated from God because you don't know Christ as your Savior. You're ungodly. Christ died for you. And so the most amazing thing is, is that when Christ went to the cross, he didn't go to the cross for good people. He went to the cross for people who hated him. 
He went to the cross for people who didn't have the time for him. He went to the cross for the ungodly and for the helpless. And that's why it's the greatest demonstration of his own love for us. It's a great demonstration of his love for you. You you can't fix your life up and then come to Jesus like you've got something to offer. You'll never have anything to offer. The amazing good news is that Christ demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more, having now been justified by his blood, justified is a technical term that means that we have been made right with God. It's just as if we had never sinned. By his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God that we rightfully deserve through the Lord Jesus Christ. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, his resurrected life, his life today as he's in heaven, interceding for us, his life where he'll return one day, his life that he has gone to prepare a place for us that where he is, we might be also. We shall be saved by his life. Jesus is the only religious leader whose tomb was empty. And not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. And so here's the deal. A few ways to respond to this. You can reject it. you can never say nobody told you what the consequences were. For the first time ever, the light bulb may be going on, and in fact, the light bulb may be going on, and you're one of those who's mocked this for a long time. I was one of those, actually. As much as I could have as a 20-year-old, I thought I was old then, you know. But it could be that you've mocked this for a while, you didn't see the need for it, or it got in the way of your eating and drinking and being marrying for tomorrow you'll die. But this morning, the Spirit of God has turned the light bulb on and you say, I get it. I am an enemy of God. I am a sinner. I am an ungodly woman. I am an ungodly man. And I don't fully understand why God would love me so much to have his own son take my place and experience his wrath so I can experience his forgiveness in his heaven. But I want to be loved like that. And I will give my heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ and I will spend the rest of my days following him as my Lord. And so it could be that that's the step that that God's calling you to take this morning. It could be that you have done that and that's where you're living. I suspect that's true of many of you, the way you were hooping and hollering earlier. And here's where this last part of the verse comes in. But we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the thing we brag about. God saved a wretched sinner like me. In your bulletin or when you came in, you were handed one of these crazy triangles that you were wondering what was up. Here's what's up. 
want to encourage you that are either giving your life to Christ today or who have given your life to Christ, just take and write on here some of your bragging about what God has done in your life. Here's what we're going to do with them. You can put your name on it. You can leave it anonymous. Is we're going to fix up that wall in the hallway this week, and we're going to put these things up there. And we'll allow your personal boasting in what God has done be more public because it's always a great encouragement. It could be that you want to boast about how he took you as an enemy and made you a friend. It could be that he has transformed you and taken away the power of a particular thought life or a behavior, um, and he's transformed you. You may want to brag about that. But we want to give you an opportunity to do that. Now, for the next weeks of this month, we're just going to talk about what it means to be free from the power of sin as followers of Jesus. We're going to do that for two weeks. We're going to spend another week looking at what the Bible tells us about hell. Jesus taught more about hell than he did heaven. He's like a good mother or father who warns about dangers. And we're going to spend a week looking at heaven. So that's what's up over the next four weeks, and this is what we get to do as a church body. And so just want to encourage you, go ahead and take those things out right now, and if you want to start writing, but let me give those of you that want to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ a chance to do that, and will commit yourselves to following him for the rest of the day. So would you just bow your heads? Prayer simply is talking to God, and uh, just begin with an accurate self-identification of yourself as a sinner, as an ungodly person, as a helpless person, whatever terms you want to use. And then just say, I receive your act of love, the gift of forgiveness of sins through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I commit myself to follow you all the days of my life. And I thank you that when I take my final breath, heaven is my home, a place of 100% life, only experiencing good. Spirit of the living God, I thank you for your work in individuals' hearts and lives and the way you convince. And I just want to bless you for their new life in Christ And I pray that you would cause them to be that kind of seed that will multiply 30, 60, 90-fold in the days and months and however many years you have for them ahead. Thank you, Lord. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.